We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. It is good to be back. It is so good to be back. And let me tell you, that little part in our intro where it says we're diving into some of the most controversial controversial cases. Is that is that this, true today? Oh yeah, it's true today, buddy. Hmm. True today. Interesting. A uh, huge shout out and thank you to our listeners, man. We would not be here without you guys. And we really appreciate everybody who takes a minute out of their busy lives to review Midwest Murder on iTunes. It dramatically helps boost our recognition out there in the world. And it's really the best way for us to climb the podcast charts. So Don, I'm curious, what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? Well, Cookie LB is disappointed. From my not disappointed, I listen to podcasts to get away from the real world for a bit. And I am so overdone with listening about white supremacy in the news, politics, etc. I am from my not know, know of both of you, and I want so bad to love this podcast, but I'm done with the Suprema stuff. I will be done with the podcast too soon if it doesn't stop. So very disappointing that you can't take the politics out of it. Whoa. I know. Listen, I want to make one thing abundantly clear about Midwest Murder and Don and I. There is no aspect of this podcast that has a political motivation. We don't bring politics into our podcast, and frankly- None whatsoever. Many of the murderers who we've searched, who who we've researched that turned out to be involved with white supremacy, we don't know that stuff going in. Mm-hmm. And and even if we did, those you know those victims who are you know so brutally murdered, do they not deserve to be talked about because of the white supremacy stuff? I, like, should we should we shy away from people who are white supremacist murderers because there's a racial racial tumult in our in our culture and our society right now? No, we're not going to. And frankly, if you listen to podcasts to get away from the real world, I would encourage not listening to murder stories because <laughs> there's nothing not real about a murder story, my no, friend. It's not like a warm hug. No. Yeah. No, so uh, I'm I'm sorry I'm, I'm truly I'm sorry, Cookie yeah, LB, that, that you yeah. feel that way. It's a bummer, but the fact is, we, this is our 19th episode, and three of them have had um, white supremacist involvement. So yeah, we hope you stick around. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to see you leave, um, but if you, uh, we understand if this isn't for you. Yeah, so. just just know anybody out there when you're listening. We're not going to shy away from the details of a story ever. It's, it's in the intro. It is. It's, it's right there in the intro. <laughs> uh, Bravos, 1534627. Is that your phone number? Uh, amazing. This is what podcasts are supposed to be. Jonah and Don catch your ear with their storytelling. The stories leave me with goosebumps. All of it makes me want to come back for more. Who would have thought the Midwest could be so dark, especially with our nice nature? Thanks, guys. 
Well, gosh dang it. You're welcome. We we appreciate that yeah. one too. Oh, yeah, it's, we appreciate it's, all of them. Yeah. We, we always, we love it when you guys take the time to review us. And again, it's, it's a big deal for us and helps us get recognized. And I, I, I just like the touch of like, the Midwest is so nice. It's quote unquote, one of the nicest places that you can go, but it doesn't mean we don't have murder here. Right. People are... People are icky everywhere. Oh, man. So big thanks to everybody who has taken the time to review us. Guys, please, again, head out there to iTunes. Give us uh, 39 seconds of your day. Drop a little review, maybe a five-star. We like the five-stars a lot more than all the other ones, <laughs> but they all help. Also, big shout-out and thank you to the official sponsor of Midwest Murder. I'm talking about our local legendary truck stop. What makes the Midwest Don Ranch truck stops? pie, all kinds of good stuff. Our truck stop shots crossroads right here in Minot is open 24 hours a day. As a matter of fact, if you're are if you're craving pie at about 9:30 on a weekday, there's one place in Minot, North Dakota you can go to get fresh pie that's made daily and delicious and it's Shots Crossroads. I did it just the other day. We we were totally craving pie. I don't know how it came about, but we were laying on the couch and I was like, man, I really want to slice up pie right now. And there you go. And, and while there you're there, go. you can get their eight gallons of ranch that they make per day. Oh yeah. You can get, get a side of ranch. Don't put the ranch on your pie, please. I would be very insulted if you did that. Yeah, but I mean, do what you want, I mean, but that's icky. Do what you want to each their own, but that's kind of icky. But yeah, we did. We, man, we went up there and we got a Dutch apple and a banana cream and they Yum. were both amazing. And again, where else can you go at 930? Anywhere. Uh, again, truck stop, shots, crossroads. If you want to support them, let them know how much you appreciate the fact that they support Midwest murder. If whether you are near or far, you can support shots crossroads by going to shotscrossroads.com a really easy to use interface you can order food you can pay for it in a snap you get a text when it's ready or you could just call ahead and get somebody a gift certificate here in town that you love this Mobile place can accommodate bus loads of people yes bus loads so lovely yeah i love so it lovely. thank you huge thanks shots crossroads chicken strips crispy french fries for Ever. No, bacon cheeseburger, french fries, crispy, like the crinkle fries with ranch and gravy. Huge thank you as well to Nomad Design House for our rad logo. Also to CJ Wynn, author of Wilder Intentions, a true crime novel. She helped write our intro. And Eric Michael Anderson for recording the spooky, spooky music that accompanies our intro. Every time. Yeah, yeah, love it. Our story today begins in 1963. To what was happening back in 63 seems like a good year on a lot of levels. I don't know. The Beatles have absolutely taken the world by musical storm. They are just now reaching the height of their power. Right. They it, wasn't love quite me the, do. it wasn't quite the British invasion Not yet. To, to the U.S. because it was 64. But right. Ooh, I They're can feel just it. Like reaching the height of their power. We're on the cusp. Yeah. yeah. The Soviet Union launched the Vostok 6 sp- spacecraft carrying Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. And I tell you what. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. This is 1963. And the Soviet Union, who we're about to enter into a cold war with, right? Yep. Has the first women woman in space. I did not know that until I did this. It took us until 1983. It took us 20 years later for Sally Ride. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's kind of embarrassing. It's very embarrassing. Okay. The United States Postal Service, this is super fascinating, launches the zip code system in 1963. It's one of those things you feel like it's just always been here with us. Really? 1963, July of that year. You know, it's, and what's interesting is, you know, 40 years earlier, that's when they, um, that's when they said you could no longer mail your children via USPS, right? So in like 1920, I think it was. So 
It took us. Please don't took, mail your children. It took us forty three years to get to get like a Dewey Decimal System, basically for um, for mail. Uh, the <laughs> so civil fun. rights movement continues to thankfully gain strength. The civil rights protests continue throughout the South, during which nonviolent activists are frequently met with beatings and arrests. Two hundred thousand people march on Washington in support of civil rights. Dr. Martin Luther King delivers his "I Have a Dream" speech. The big movies of the year. Dr. Strangelove and the Birds, and perhaps the most popular athlete in the history of sports is born, come on, who is it? Michael, Michael Jordan. Jordan. Number 23, baby. Number 20. The only is, reason why I ever watched basketball, I don't even like basketball. There's never been a more popular athlete in the history of sports. I just, there, and there may never will be. And his, the, the documentary that about him on HBO, and uh, they're not a sponsor, uh, is... Is it really good? It's so good. Like, okay. it's, it's worth, uh, it's worth getting. Anyway. And tragically, President John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Vice President Lyndon Johnson becomes president and the accused assassin... Lee Harvey Oswald is shot and killed a short time later by Jack Ruby. And we're still trying to figure out what really happened on the grassy knoll. Yeah. 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 Also, um, in 1963, June 28th, as promised, is where our story begins. Daphne Antoinette Wright was born June 28th, 1963 at the Annie Penn Memorial Hospital in Reedsville, North Carolina. When she was 10 months old, Daphne contracted rubella, or German measles, which caused her to lose her hearing. In terms of linguistic development, Daphne was an ordinary kid before the measles, gurgling and cooing, babbling, grunting, laughing, and crying, all of the vocal play that babies engage in before they learn actual language. And then, after the measles, all of that stopped. Her parents... Gordon and Carolyn didn't really know what had happened, why their daughter didn't make all those baby noises in anymore. In fact, it wasn't until Daphne was almost two years old and her mother took her to the hospital at Duke University that they learned she was deaf. Having become deaf before the acquisition of language, Daphne had absolutely no way to communicate with her parents, with anyone in the world around her, nor could anyone communicate with her. Hers became a world of silence, a world that we can only imagine became more and more confusing, even frightening to her. Think about it. How do we learn language? Say you're a little kid, you're a year or so old. You know you really like that round, sweet, chewy thing your mom gives you after you eat dinner. You see your mom reach for the container that holds those sweet, chewy things and you're excited. You smile and coo. You wave your arms, your eyes light up. You're in a state of desire. And your mom grabs a couple of those sweet, chewy things from the jar and she brings them over to you and she says, oh, Miss Daphne, you like these, don't you? You like your treat after dinner. You want these, baby girl? You want a cookie, sweetie pie? Can you say cookie, Daphne? Cookie. Say cookie. Cookie. Right? That's how we teach our kids to talk. That's, that's how it goes. And over time, you learn that round, sweet, chewy thing that you like so much is called a cookie. And you learn to say the word. And more than saying the word itself, you learn that saying it means asking for it. If you say cookie, you just might get a cookie, Don. So language isn't just about identifying objects. It's also about understanding and expressing abstract concepts associated with objects. When we first learn a word, when we first learn to say cookie, we're saying, oh, that's a cookie. I know what it is. I can identify that object. 
But then we learn that when we say cookie, we're also saying I like cookies. I want a cookie. In other words, we're expressing desire. That's baby talk in a nutshell. Single words that both identify an object and express an abstract concept connected to that object, like desire or any other abstract concept, need or fear or comfort, sadness or joy, curiosity or satisfaction, jealousy, even rage. But Daphne, having gone deaf before the acquisition of language, could neither identify objects nor express abstract concepts. She could neither understand nor express her own emotions. What must, what must that have been like for a young child? What was it like to live in a silent world, unable to communicate your most basic human needs and feelings? Well, and we're, and we're talking like this is 1963, you know, yeah. so I mean, those in the, in the hearing world and, uh, and the not hearing world, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we've come a long way since then, you know, cochlear implants, if, if you so choose, um, you know, the sign language, you know, just different means of communication, you know, this is again, 1963, people are still fighting for basic rights, you let, know, let alone. It's, yeah. And so I learned through this that less than 10% of people born deaf are actually born to deaf parents. Something else I didn't know prior to this is that linguistically, if you were introduced to sign language right away, you would learn sign language as easily and efficiently as hearing people learn regular language. Absolutely. Yep. I had no idea. Yeah. I, I was actually pretty, the human mind is incredible when you think of it like that. Right. Well, I mean. Uh, but da- Daphne's parents were, were, were poor. They had nothing. They had no resources. They, they had no ability. And, and this is, this is tragic. Daphne, uh, we'll get more into it here, but she never actually, the first time she really communicated with her parents was when she was 10 years old. Oh, that's so sad. Jesus, think about that. Well, and I mean, think about you know, that. That, that's, that. That almost makes me cry. Oh, it's horrible. I, you know, I mean, I, so many parents, I was one of them that, that taught my, my infants sign language, you know, like they can still use cracker and more and all done and all that stuff. And, but I mean, we're talking 50 years later, you know, not, I mean, not in 63 and your parents are poor. Yeah. And to not, to not be able to communicate, my gosh, that's. When Daphne was approaching school age, which is to say when Daphne had lived for nearly four years in a world of silence, unable to communicate with anyone, unable to share her own humanity with anyone, someone told her parents they should take their daughter to a speech pathologist. Based on the advice they got from the speech pathologist, her parents decided to enroll Daphne in a school for the deaf. At the age of five, Daphne's parents packed her up drove nearly 125 miles into the foothills of the Smoky Mountains and dropped their five-year-old daughter off at the Morganton School, a boarding school for the deaf. They had no way to say goodbye to their daughter, no way to even explain why they were leaving their daughter in an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people. Nor could the people at the school reassure Daphne that she would be safe, that they were there to help her. Nor could Daphne express what surely was her fear, anxiety, sadness, uncertainty, being left by her parents in an unfamiliar setting in the hands of complete 
strangers. Oh my gosh, that makes me want to cry. Like that's awful. It's that, freaking sad, buddy. Well, and and psychologically, this effect on her. The abandonment. It's, it's abandonment. It's a hundred percent abandonment because it's not they what can't, her parents' intent was. No, but, but they can't communicate with her. Like how awful. So I mean, her psychological development has got to be. Well, just not being able to communicate anyway, and then being left and not being able to be reassured. Being, I mean, she's four years old, right? I mean, and, and she's, I it's need not that like you can write something down to her. You, you can't, can't write, read. I love you, you're safe, because she can't she read. She can't read. Oh my gosh. In time, Daphne began to do well at the Morganton School. She learned sign language and began to communicate with those around her. But she still had no way to communicate with her family. She was nine or 10 years old before she would ever communicate with a member of her own family. It was actually Daphne herself who taught her own father how to sign. Daphne's mother eventually learned fingerspelling when Daphne was quite young, but since Daphne couldn't read yet, fingerspelling was of little use. Daphne's mother didn't learn to sign until Daphne was in high school, 16 years old. So it was Daphne, who was just a child, a deaf child, struggling to learn language to express herself, a child with only the most rudimentary of language skills at this point, trying to teach her father how to sign, how to communicate with her. It must have been an overwhelming task. Overwhelming doesn't even cut it. No. I mean, this this kid had to basically raise herself from a very, very young age with and no communication. It's, it's, it's what's really tragic. They had a huge family. Big family, lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. And at all the family no functions, she was completely ignored. None of them ever made an effort to communicate with her at all. Daphne kept on at the Morganton School and later at the North Carolina School for the Deaf, but it wasn't easy for her. She loved sports, baseball and basketball and track, especially where she excelled, but she struggled academically. Daphne was not intellectually handicapped. On IQ tests, she scored in the range of average intelligence, but learning is doubly difficult for deaf people. It's not that deafness creates an inability to learn. It's just that without language, learning is so very much more difficult. Because of the, well, because of the way we teach. I mean, because of the way we communicate, especially in 1963. So, well, it's kind of the way it's the way we learn naturally for, through our environment. What a lot of scientists and researchers have, what they talk about, it's called a fund of knowledge. Your fund of knowledge is what you are generally able to consume in information around you, whether it's through the TV, through friends, through your social, essentially through your environment. Everything that, that fills your fund of knowledge, this helps you understand abstract concepts. It helps you know, uh, you might not know Star Wars, but you know who Darth Vader is type of stuff, right? That's all these, these, these things that are in your fund of knowledge. When you're deaf, that fund isn't there. It's non-existent. So she never had that. Well, when you're, when you're probably being, being deaf in 1963 and not having a family that was, Able, not unwilling, but not able to support that. They didn't have the means. So along with the academic struggles, Daphne had social struggles. If pre-linguistic deafness makes it difficult to learn how to express abstract concepts and emotions, hindering the development of what we might call the self, deafness at any age or stage of development also hinders the development of social skills. It is difficult, if not impossible, to be a social being 
without language. Learning how to solve problems, how to negotiate conflicts, how to navigate relationships. These skills are very much based in language. As one expert in deaf education puts it, quote, When we tell our kids, use your words, we're saying, that's how you control your emotions. That's how you recognize what they are. That's how you can give them a name, and that's how you can control them. Say you have two children and one of them hits the other one. As a parent, you say, don't hit your sister. Don't hit her because it hurts her and, and it scares her and it hurts her feelings. It's through language that we learn the social consequences of our actions. Without someone saying to us, don't do X because it causes Y, it's all but impossible to develop the social skills that allow us to function in society at large. And what you're what you're saying is through language, basically communication, like any type of communication, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yep. yeah, yep. yeah. It, it, the the communication, the understanding of emotions, and it's it's one thing that kept coming back through the researchers in this story, and in and learning through this is how complicated it is for deaf people to understand abstract concepts. Sure. And her father, Gordon was an alcoholic. He couldn't hold jobs because he was always drunk. And he was horrifically violent. Numerous times, he beat Daphne's mother unconscious. Daphne's mom had been in and out of hospitals throughout their 18-year marriage. In fact, she lost three jobs because she was beat so bad she couldn't go to work. But she didn't leave him because her religion and her belief was that you were supposed to stay with your husband no matter what. Stand by your man. They went to church Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And they hid much of the abuse from the children, but not all of it. Daphne was really close with her father in spite of the violence toward her mother. And Gordon didn't beat the children much, and he only beat her mom when he was drunk. Gordon also That makes it okay. Oh, okay. Well, just when you're drinking, it's fine. Gordon also disappeared for months at a time with no explanation. Once he left for over a year, it led to Daphne having anger issues and trouble in school. Tragically, he died of cancer in 1981 when Daphne was about 18 years old. No matter what he had done to Daphne's mother, her mother never taught her children to hate or dislike him. So that was her life. Alcoholism, abandonment, church and a large family who essentially ignored her. Daphne's lack of social skills hindered her throughout her school years. Her teenage years, again, are especially difficult, both at home and at school. Their family home burns down. And then when her father her father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he dies in 81, Daphne began getting into more altercations at school, particularly with teachers. She gets caught smoking and drinking even smuggling alcohol on an athletic trip. Also during her teenage years, Daphne comes to the realization that she is a lesbian. It's the late 70s, early 80s. Coming out at that time is difficult, even a treacherous decision. Well, you just couldn't do it a lot of times either. And it's especially difficult for Daphne, who has been raised in a small Southern Baptist community struggling to understand and accept her own sexual identity with no support from the outside world, Daphne becomes depressed and takes to self-harm, 
cutting herself and once trying to overdose on pills. Oh my gosh, this this poor girl, like I can just I can see it starting to unfold because she is she's never been taught. She's never been shown love. She's I mean, just adversity is her life. That's it. Yeah. Like there's you know It's in my time doing Midwest murder Daphne's probably had the hardest upbringing of anyone I've encountered so far. I mean, maybe maybe some of them Rulo kids, um, but it, it, it's it's pretty rough, man. And it seems that no one around her, not teachers or counselors or school officials, not her friends or family, has the wherewithal to give Daphne the help and support she needs. They see her as a troublemaker or as just plain troubled. But the response is not to help her, but to get rid of her. In 1983, Daphne is expelled from school, just a few months shy of her 20th birthday. On her own, without even a high school diploma, deaf in a hearing world, without much of a support network from friends or family, Daphne now has to make her own way in the world. It's hard enough to get a job without a high school diploma, but being deaf makes it even harder. The unemployment rate among the deaf is staggeringly high. Fewer than 40% of those with a hearing disability work full-time. She bounces from job to job for a while, but does have a fairly successful employment stint at District Photo in Beltsville, Maryland, a photo developing company, where she has a perfect work record for three years. And it's not easy being deaf in a largely hearing world. Across all age groups, approximately 600,000 people in the United States, that's just 0.22% of the population, are deaf. More than half are over 65 years of age. Fewer than one out of every 1,000 people in the United States become deaf before 18 years of age. So Daphne, having become deaf at 10 months of age, is part of a very, very small, a tiny group of people in America. And deaf people face discrimination and isolation because communication is so difficult. Discrimination and isolation, in turn, make it harder for deaf people to develop a strong identity and self-confidence. And it's very difficult for deaf people to build relationships, have a social life, to make human connections in the hearing world. But something happened in the mid-90s that had a big and massively positive impact on the social lives of deaf people. Thank you, Al Gore. The internet. I'm joking. Oh. Al Gore didn't invent the internet. It was okay. a joke. Okay. It's, I'm like, what? Did Al Gore have something to do with the internet? No, it's, a, it's like a, I think, it is a joke. I think it's a Gen X joke, I think. Are we in Dickinson? <laughs> <laughs> because Don's because, only funny in Dickinson. Because I'm only funny in Dickinson, North Dakota, not anywhere else. So, no. The internet, we all think of it as a handy place to go shopping, find information for a research paper, to share photos of our beach vacation, maybe even to meet someone. But for the deaf community... The advance of and widespread access to the internet is so much more than that. It's a way to communicate freely and easily with almost anyone, deaf or hearing, someone with or without sign language, and even more than a mode of communication, for the deaf, the internet becomes a way to express identity, to say and be who you are. The internet and social media allow deaf people to be part of the world at large in ways they never could before. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine never being able to communicate and then bam, 
the idea of her getting the internet and being able to communicate with the world makes me so happy. It almost, I, I could almost cry tears of joy for her right now. It makes me so happy, but it also scares the shit out of me because she doesn't have those social skills. She doesn't have those things. Right. So the internet can be a really tough place too. Mm-hmm. In 1999, Daphne meets a woman named Jackie Chessmore online. They actually met in a gay chat room. They strike up a friendship, a friendship serious enough for Jackie to travel from her home in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to visit Daphne in Maryland in 2000. After that trip, Jackie and Daphne become romantically involved, and in October of 2000, Daphne moves to Sioux Falls and into the house that Jackie owns at 1806 South Phillips, where they live together for several years. See, now we're getting into the Midwest. If you were if you were concerned that we were talking about South Carolina and Maryland <laughs> and the Smoky Mountains, We've arrived. we're now back into the Midwest. Daphne had met someone else online in 1999, a woman named Sally Collins, who lived in Madison, Wisconsin. Perhaps unbeknownst to Jackie, Daphne develops a romantic relationship with Sally while she's living in Sioux Falls. And around 2002, Daphne tells Jackie she needs to move to Wisconsin to help out a friend. But in reality, she's moving to be in a romantic relationship with Sally. Daphne and Sally live in Wisconsin together until August of 2004 when they both return to Sioux Falls and move in with Jackie at 1806 South Phillips. Jackie's house is big and old and she needs help taking care of it. Both Daphne and Sally are struggling economically and they need a place to live. Daphne doesn't have a job at this time. She's living on SSI, and Jackie gives her a good deal on rent. Sally works in data entry for Wells Fargo, and Jackie has a job processing student loan deferments for Citibank. But things are tight for all three women living at 1806 South Phillips. They don't even have garbage collection at the house, for example, but they beg beg their trash and then haul it to dumpsters behind various commercial buildings around town to dispose of it. The three women live together for just over a year. In September of 2005, Sally moves out, finding a place in Sioux Falls, in a Sioux Falls apartment complex locally referred to as the Deaf Apartments, located at 2815 East 11th Street. Sally moves out because, as she says, her relationship with Daphne was not working out. Quote, I wasn't very happy at all and I decided to move out and break up with her. The two did not live together anymore, but they don't completely break up. Daphne and Sally continue seeing each other every weekend, Daphne going to Sally's apartment or Sally coming to the house on South Phillips. Okay, so hang on a second. So Jackie, at this point, does she know that they're in a relationship together? Yep. Okay. Yep, yep. Jackie and uh, Daphne and Jackie kind of break up and maintain a friendship, and then Daphne is with Sally. Okay. Uh, Sally and and Jackie did not get along very well. Well, I so wonder was, why. I yeah, wonder. I wonder why. Right, there is some resentment there, <laughs> and it eventually like gets to the point where Sally is not even welcome at their house. So Daphne goes to Sally's every weekend and hangs out with her, really demanding of Sally's time. Mm-hmm. Like that's her person. Sure, her person. Yep. While living at the Deaf Apartments, Sally meets a woman named Darlene Vandergeesen. Darlene isn't gay, and the two women do not have a romantic relationship. They're friends. They play cards together, watch TV together. They go to deaf club meetings together and enjoy the occasional meal out. Over time, 
Sally and Darlene become quite close, as friends. And this bothers Daphne a lot. She's jealous of any relationships Sally has, especially with other deaf people, which Darlene was. Daphne very much wants to keep Sally all to herself, wants to be with her all the time. She wants Sally to be her girlfriend, but there's something more to it. It's as if she wants to be the only person in Sally's life. I think what and what you can equate that to, you know, remember that Daphne has major attachment, major abandonment issues. So Big if time. so if somebody if if somebody is not um developed socially, not in a not in a great spot mentally, you know, and and in a very unhealthy manner with those with those attachment abandonment issues. Anybody who comes into that other person's life, they think that they're going to be better and leave them for them. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you can kind of see or understand her thinking a little bit, not understand, not, not condoning it, but just see no, where she's coming it, from. She's never been, she's, she's not developed there. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very smart observation and it's, it's, it's very true. By the end of 2005, the beginning of 2006, Daphne and Sally are arguing more and more. In fact, Sally tried to leave Daphne several times, but as Sally put it, Daphne used a very angry and forceful personality to pressure Sally back into the relationship. On January 27th, Sally made the comment to Daphne that she wanted to see other people. Daphne suspects Sally is having a romantic relationship with Darlene, telling her, quote, well, it's obvious it is Darlene you want to go out with. Sally denies this time and time again. But Daphne doesn't believe her. Daphne doesn't accept that Darlene isn't gay. She's she's likes men. Right. Yep. That same night on January 27th, 2006, Daphne's jealousy explodes in an argument with Sally at her apartment. Sally and Darlene are hanging out at Sally's apartment that evening when the doorbell rings. Sally answers the door and finds Daphne there, a very angry Daphne who storms in and accuses Darlene of destroying her relationship with Sally. Sally tells Daphne, quote, You are wrong. Darlene did not do anything with our relationship. Sally then asks Daphne to leave. Daphne refuses to leave, and so Sally tells Darlene maybe she'd better leave. Angry at Daphne's accusation, Darlene grabs her jacket and leaves, saying, fuck you, and flipping Daphne off right in the face as she goes. And saying, air quotes, she's signing it at her. That's that's to be clear. After Darlene leaves, the argument between Daphne and Sally escalates. Daphne repeatedly begs Sally not to leave her, to come back to her, and Sally reportedly tells Daphne no. Their romantic relationship is over. Daphne will not listen, will not accept Sally's refusal of her, and even though Sally asks her repeatedly, she won't leave the apartment. After an hour or more of arguing and pleading, Sally becomes fearful of Daphne, afraid that Daphne may hurt her, and she calls the police. When the police arrive around 11pm, Sally tells them she wants their help to get Daphne out of her apartment. Daphne agrees to leave at this point, but she is angry with Sally for having called the police. Sally says to her, quote, well, why didn't you listen to me? As Daphne leaves Sally's apartment, she glowers at Sally and says, you will be very sorry. The next day, January 28th, Daphne contacts Sally and tells her, I'd like to get 
Quote, I'd like to call Darlene to come over and resolve our problems so we can forget what happened. Are you sure? Sally asks Darlene. Yes. Daphne replies, and so the three women once again meet at Sally's apartment. After a lengthy conversation and apologies from Daphne, she and Darlene shake hands, and things seem to be, if not completely fine, at least on an even keel. It is the last time Daphne, Sally, and Darlene will ever be in a room together. But it is not the last time Daphne and Sally will be together, nor is it the last time Daphne and Darlene will meet. It may have seemed to Sally that an uneasy truce between Daphne and Darlene had been achieved. We can imagine her thinking, maybe everything will settle down. Maybe I can get my life back. Maybe Daphne and Darlene will never be friends, but maybe I can be friends with both of them. For three days, after the altercation at Sally's apartment, Daphne simmers and stews. Finally, on February 1st, Daphne calls Darlene. She concocts a story. She wants to do, and I want to say calls, right? These are deaf people, so they're, they're, they're using instant messenger as, as, as calling. It's like TTY. Or text messaging. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Finally, on February 1st, Daphne calls Darlene. She concocts a story. She wants to do something really special for Sally for Valentine's Day. And she acquiesces. Since Darlene and Sally are good friends, maybe Darlene can help her choose the perfect gift. Daphne asks Darlene to meet her at Pizza Hut on 26th Street and Sycamore Ave in Sioux Falls. For reasons we will never know, Darlene agrees to meet Daphne. She drives her black 2000 Ford F-150 to the Pizza Hut. It is the last time anyone will see Darlene alive. On February 3rd, when Darlene is not reported to work for two days, her employer... JDS Industries contacts her parents, listed as next of kin on her job application, to report that she hasn't been seen for two days. And this was completely unlike her. Darlene's parents, on their way to Nebraska to see family, immediately turned back, fear and concern sweeping them off their feet. For Darlene to not show up to work or call in was super unusual. On February 3rd, Darlene's father, Gene Vandergeesen, reports that his 42-year-old daughter, Darlene K. Vandergeesen, was missing. Police respond quickly to the report and are granted access to Darlene's apartment for a welfare check. A search of Darlene's apartment doesn't turn up much. Her bed sheets are missing, her cats are unfed, and her 2000 Ford F-150 pickup is gone. Officers canvass the neighborhood and police begin interviewing co-workers and friends of Darlene. The investigation reveals she left work at 5 p.m. on February 1st and was seen at her tax preparer's office at about 5.15. That same night, February 3rd, just after 10 p.m., there's a small break in the case. An abandoned pickup is reported at the local Pizza Hut. The pickup is in fact owned by Darlene. A witness believes it's been there since around 6 or 6.30 p.m. on the 1st. There's still no sign of the missing person, her keys, her wallet, or anything. Police learn through the investigation that Darlene Vandergeesen is deaf and relies 
rather heavily on her cell phone and computer as her means of communication. The majority of Darlene's social network was hearing impaired or deaf. Darlene's cell and computer were found at her apartment, and there had been no conversation during the days she was missing. Darlene's sister, Sandra Sidford, shares disturbing information with investigators. Someone, under the name Wendy Smith, had sent Darlene threatening and cruel emails on January 22nd. In the email, Wendy Smith told Darlene she was, quote, fat and ugly, and you have elephant legs. Stay away from the deaf apartments. Stay away from Sally Collins. Police issue a subpoena to Yahoo for the registered user of Wendy Smith. While they await the results, police investigate Sally's ex-boyfriend and find blood in the back of his vehicle. Ultimately, however, his alibi proved to be foolproof and the blood samples collected from his vehicle were animal DNA. Because we're in the Midwest, remember? Yep. If you either shoot it, stuff it, or marry it, right? Is that is that how they say that? I think that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Lichty helped process the evidence and conduct the interview of Darlene's boyfriend, her ex, named Jeff Hakeman. He consented to the search and, have his, and again, had his vehicle searched. The blood that was found, five representatives were ta- representative samples were taken. It proved to be animal blood, just like he said. He had been hunting. That was that. As the search progressed over the weekend, Daphne Wright was really busy in the home she shared with Jackie Chessmore. Their basement and sewer system backed up and flooded the previous year, leaving a bunch of tattered orange carpet, concrete, and other garbage in the basement. When Sally came home from work that Friday, February 3rd, she noticed Daphne in the basement, which was generally unusual because that area of the home was unlivable, and they didn't spend any time there. But when Daphne told Jackie she was getting it all cleaned up down there and hauling the trash and the carpet out, Jackie didn't think much of it. She certainly didn't offer to help. Sally was, or, um, Jackie was legitimately terrified of the basement, and her body didn't really allow her to move up and down the steep and narrow stairs. She had an old injury on her leg, and she just literally never went down there. It scared her. Jackie also noticed appeared to be Fresh paint at the foot of the stairs, blue paint. The stairs had been painted blue and it looked like the flooring, uh, concrete had been painted blue. Daphne's weekends were for Sally and Sally alone. Every Friday, she would spend the weekend at Sally's house. The two watched movies and went on dates. On the Friday following Darlene's disappearance, Jackie noticed Daphne was spending a lot of time down there in the not livable concrete slab of the basement. Daphne left later that day to, quote, take out the garbage and was only supposed to be gone for an hour or so. Like I said, they paid to use commercial dumpsters around town. This was not something I'd actually heard of previously. I'm used to just having my garbage picked up from my curb. But here they pay for the use of commercial dumpsters. So whenever they take the trash out, they load it into the back of of Jackie's vehicle, of which Daphne Daphne and Jackie share a vehicle, and they load it in the back. And they take it to the dumpsters. Now, Daphne usually, she was only supposed to be gone about an hour or so. Not only did Daphne have plans with Sally to pick her up at 7 p.m., but Jackie needed the vehicle to run her own errands. As I said, Daphne didn't have her own car. She used Jackie's vehicle in alternating weeks when Jackie would carpool to work with friends. 
Now, Jackie worked a late night shift. So her shifts were from like 2 to 12 every night. She was never, she wasn't home at nights except for Fridays. Friday would be the day where she got off at 4. The rest of the week, Jackie worked late into the night. Now, the garbage trip shouldn't have taken more than an hour. But when Sally arrived to pick up Daphne, she wasn't there. Jackie was pissed. Sally waited for more than an hour in the entryway patio area. And she waited in the patio because, like I said, Jackie didn't like her, wouldn't let her wait in the house. Um, Jackie didn't really like her, so didn't invite her in. Four hours later, Daphne finally returned. And Sally picked her up, and she went on to go hang out with her that night. In fact, on Saturday, they went to Darlene's house together. Darlene's family had gathered there. Her parents were distraught. Friends and relatives were present and making plans, searching for hope, looking for any sign of where their daughter could be. Sally and Darlene were friends, and Darlene or and Sally wanted to console Darlene's parents, and she brought Daphne right with her. Daphne embraced Darlene's mother, hugged her, and said she was sorry her daughter was missing and that she would pray for her return. Oh, that gives me creep vibes. By Monday, there was still no sign of Darlene, but late in the day, Yahoo delivered a big break in the case. The Yahoo user, Wendy Smith, the one who had sent the nasty emails to Darlene just a few weeks prior, came from a registered user with an IP address located at 1806 South Phillips, the same address of the home Daphne Wright shared with Jackie Chesmore. This is the break investigators needed. In light of this information, Jackie Chessmore and Daphne Wright are called in for interviews with police on February 6th. Detective Mike Olson conducted the interview with Daphne Wright. And this was one of the more challenging interviews of Detective Olson's career. He didn't have a translator present. The process was slow going. And... She answered his questions by writing her responses on a notepad. So it's a big, long back and forth. It was completely unlike any interview he'd ever handled. When asked about the emails from Wendy Smith, Daphne denied sending them. But Detective Mike Olson wasn't buying it. Then, later in the interview, Daphne said, quote, Well... Maybe a hacker got into my computer and sent these emails and signed them with the name Wendy Smith. Detective Olson confronted her and said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're being honest with me. While being interviewed, Daphne disclosed to police eventually that she had indeed sent the demeaning and profane message to Darlene. Initially, she denied it. Then. Later in the interview, after initially denying it, she also admitted to having talked to Darlene Vandergeesen at the Pizza Hut in the parking lot located at 26th Street and Sycamore Avenue. Well, and, and hang on. I mean, just because she sent the emails and was a jerk doesn't mean she killed her. No, right? not at all. Right? I mean, we're, we can still look at it that way. Absolutely. Daphne Wright told police that she spoke to Darlene on Sunday the 29th while at the apartment with Sally Collins and had and had set up the meeting with Darlene for Wednesday the 1st. 
Daphne told police she arrived at the Pizza Hut parking lot at approximately 6 p.m. and Darlene was already there waiting for her. Daphne told police that she was upset with Darlene because Daphne suspected Darlene was trying to destroy her relationship with her girlfriend of five years. Daphne Wright admitted to police, admitted to police that she felt Daphne Collins was cheating on her with Darlene. Daphne told police that sometimes Sally would ask her to leave when Darlene came over. Daphne also told police she would not be allowed to come over to the, to Sally Collins' place when Darlene was there. And Daphne did admit to police that she and Darlene had an argument. Daphne told police that when she arrived at Sally's apartment that evening, she found Darlene to be present. That was the confrontation we discussed earlier. Daphne then told police that Sally Collins asked her to leave, and as Darlene left, she gave her the fuck you symbol. So kind of going over this whole fight, Daphne was giving, giving all this information of her little history with Sally and Darlene to Detective Olson. Now, Daphne told police on Friday, February 3rd, that she removed carpet from the residence located at 1806 South Phillips. That carpet had been damaged in a sewer backup. Daphne stated she removed the carpet and tossed it into a garbage dumpster near the old Kmart on South Minnesota Avenue, near Dario's Pizza, located at 2920 South Minnesota Ave. Police, of course, were also interviewing Jackie Chessmore. Jackie told police that on Friday at approximately 6 p.m., Daphne removed some carpet and cement blocks from the residence they shared, and that Daphne had a large plastic garbage bag when she left the residence located at 1806 South Phillips. She put it all into Jackie Chessmore's 2000 Suzuki SUV, and Jackie's understanding was that Daphne was taking these items to a garbage dumpster somewhere in the neighborhood. Daphne was reportedly gone for more than two hours. Detective Olson also noted her black denim jeans were stained blue. After the interview, she was allowed to leave, but prior to that, Officers were able to get a warrant to get swabs of her, and they did confiscate those jeans with the blue paint during that process. Oh, so it was blue paint, not not uh, not bleach or anything like that. Nope. Yeah, okay. some blue paint. Um, they were stained blue, some blue paint or something on them. So she was allowed to leave, but it was clear to law enforcement she probably had something to do with this murder. They're really feeling sus. Mm-hmm. Feeling, feeling, feeling sus after that. So she checked into the Days Inn Motel. It's not far from the Empire Shopping Mall. And she stayed there until February 10th. It's the next four nights. When she checked out, law enforcement searched the room. Officers found a note in the trash. It was written and scrawled on... A hotel notepad. Oh, sure, like the ones that they put on yep. you know, on the end table or whatever with a with a pen. So yeah, I'm, I'm that never works. I'm going to read that from start to finish. Now this is all of what Daphne wrote on the hotel notes. First page: In the memory of Darlene, whose memories will always be in our hearts that she has touched. Thank you, Darlene. May God be with you. I'm scared in my life. From October to November till now, because the man broke in, which leave opened the door while I used computer and thought that he worked basement or check fuse, something like that. But he got gun point on my face 
said, I quote, forgive me for the words I'm about to say, bitch nigger got out of here, then forced me lick his penis. He's still bothering, stalking me. He said, if I call police, then know where to find my family and will kill them, my lover. He still follow where I go, but not often. He said, ex-marine and could hurt me. On day I met Darlene at Pizza Hut for five minutes after that, he raped her since he thought I told Darlene's FBI or something. I was told Darlene better other time due to no money, but I didn't know that man follow me till I saw him got her. Whenever I take a nap, man came in my bedroom and said, got out of bed. Then he got my cat in the kitchen, pee on cat's face, and called me bitch nigger. He wear sun shadow on his face, which he not wanted me to see his face. He is about six feet. I still scared. Well, when I'm bored, so I decided to clean up in basement, paint. I always dream live in basement and how pretty many things. I saw little blood there by steps and smell gas, which I was puzzled. I thought bird's blood dead on the floor in basement, so I asked Jackie, pick bird up, to throw out. Maybe man frame me, question mark. He said wanted me to get out of Sioux Falls and bitch nigger. By the way, I tried make Darlene to leave from my lover's apartment because I'm scared to death and need support by my lover, which she not know what happened about man was in my house. I have to keep a secret due to he is very dangerous. Long story. I refused tell police or FBI what happened about man. I have to told FBI lies because man will kill my family. I have no idea who he is. Sighs. Why he do that to me? Because I'm black? I always want tell Jackie about man, but I can't. That's why I'm bad mood. Freak out. Worried. I always cancel my appointment with doctor most, and I didn't act it up to looking for jobs. Computer training because of man stalking me. He is very dangerous. I'm risk tell you everything about man because you aren't because you are police so i don't know if man know where i am wow wow that's a lot to unpack there so and and i want to point out this was during from february 6th to the 10th now this note was written before any major investigative details were made known to the public essentially the person writing that note would had to have had knowledge of something that went on in that basement. The note made reference to blood being found on the floor, paint, the smell of gas, all this stuff. Right. I mean, okay, most likely, yes. But she was discussing what she did in the house, right? Of, of what well, she changed in the house, right? Like, yeah. So, meanwhile, I mean, it's suspicious as shit. Don't get me wrong. Meanwhile, following the initial interview, a search warrant was immediately applied for the residence of Daphne Wright and Jackie Chessmore. 
It was approved and executed the very next day after Daphne's initial interview, February 7th. So while Daphne was staying at the, uh, what was it, the Days Inn? Yeah, the Days Inn. Yeah, well, so while Daphne was making up strange, tell, strange tales and writing them on hotel notepads, police were thoroughly searching her residence. Here's what they found. There was an obvious smell of cleaning agents permeating the house. And it didn't take long for the focus to shift toward the dark, dingy, spider-infested basement. It was dark enough that extra lighting had to be brought down. Officers worked on their hands and knees, processing the grisly scene. Ew. There's blue paint everywhere, fresh and sticky, big splotches of blue paint. And this was not a cohesive paint job. It was erratic in spots that didn't make a ton of sense, like on the floor and partially up the stairs. And there are big scuffs and scratches on the basement floor. Not like the scratches you'd see from fingernails or like a screwdriver or some small hand tool. These were more like small grooves cut into the concrete. I have a feeling I know where this is going. In the basement, there was a very small room that was originally used for storing coal. A coal room. It's now, Midwest. It was cold, right? Bro, That's I didn't know about this. I did not know that coal rooms were a thing until yeah. this story. So it, yeah. it's like in the basement, a, se- a separate smaller room where you'd keep coal for right. a coal burning furnace for your home. And there was like there was likely a, a window in the basement that had been boarded up or whatever that was like the old coal spot. Like so, probably you know, it would like, like toss it in there. Yeah, toss it. Yeah. The floor of the coal room was also painted blue, freshly done. In the coal room. Officers could smell gasoline and petroleum. When they scraped the paint off the floor, the gasoline smell was overwhelming. When Detective Steve Schaefer examined the coal room, he discovered what appeared to be bone and tissue splatter against the wall. Schaefer had attended many autopsies throughout his career. To him, the gore looked grotesquely similar to what he sees on an autopsy bone saw. These bits of bone and tissue were splattered 18 inches to 2 feet across the wall. Other notable findings. A receipt from Walgreens Drugstore, dated February 3rd. Daphne paid for her medication. She also bought a box of hefty 9mm black plastic lawn and garden trash bags, a green flannel shirt stained in blue paint. In the backyard, there appeared to have been a recent effort to dig a hole with a discarded shovel tossed hastily aside next to the failed effort. And, perhaps the most damning piece of evidence, a receipt from Ace Hardware for a 1.5 horsepower Remington electric chainsaw. It was $52.99 plus tax. A clerk at Ace Hardware remembered the odd sale. Chainsaws aren't often purchased in the dead of winter. It was on February 3rd, and she remembered selling the chainsaw to a stocky black woman who was deaf and wearing an Old Navy sweatshirt. She was able to identify Daphne Wright in a photographic lineup. It was at that point Daphne Wright 
was arrested and charged with kidnapping. Essentially, subsequently following her exit from the Days Inn, she's arrested. The investigation continued, as did the search for Darlene. Given the blood-splattered, bone-riddled mess of gore in the small coal room, investigators fear the worst for Darlene Vandergeesen. They knew from their interview with Daphne that she had, quote, taken out the trash on Friday, February 3rd, that she had deposited garbage in the dumpster at Dario's Pizza and more in the dumpster behind Sherwin-Williams. That garbage was picked up on Monday, the 6th, and taken to the Sioux Falls landfill. And Sioux Falls is a larger city. It has Midwestern standards are you know, according to those. Sure. Um, So that's going to be a big landfill. Thus began the grueling, frozen February search of the Sioux Falls landfill. Over the course of 15 days, more than a dozen officers and volunteers probed, inspected, and dug through tons and tons and tons of waste. Uh, So, I mean, frozen February search, I mean... It's February. The yeah. average, I mean, the average temp is probably what twenty degrees, maybe less. I'd you know, say five depend, degrees. Depending, yeah, depending. Yeah. yeah, it's it's cold. You know, depending on the year, because it's you know, so I mean, it's a big landfill. It's freaking. It's cold. mountains. It's, it's mountains so, of trash. Yeah, and it's so cold. I mean, can you can you imagine like? Oh, oh. On February eleventh, Darlene's legs, severed at the knee, were found at the Sioux Falls landfill. They were wrapped in plain sheets, discarded remnants of orange carpet, and heavy-duty black trash bags. With it, an American Sign Language sweatshirt, size 2XL. A sweatshirt later confirmed to be Daphne Wright's, a gift from Sally Collins during their time living in Wisconsin. In the same chunk of garbage, a black-and-white bloodstained t-shirt and a JDS Industries parka, both belonging to Darlene Vandergeesen. About a week later, as the grisly search continued, another gruesome discovery. Darlene Vandergeesen's pelvis, from the waist to just above the knees. The pelvis section was wrapped in a boldly identifiable blanket with a mallard duck pattern the same pattern of bedding used at the home of Daphne Wright. Nearly two months later, on Tuesday, March 28th, just inside the Minnesota border and a few miles off the interstate, cleanup crews found the rest of Darlene's body, wrapped in sheets, blankets, and plastic bags. There was orange carpet fiber that matched the carpet from the 1806 house, and had Darlene's DNA on it. Darlene's head was enclosed with a plastic bag, like the type you would buy bedding in, and it had been pulled over Darlene's head and then cinched and tied down, and another piece of cord was taken and wrapped around the the bag and her neck, presumably to cut off any oxygen. The bag on the side of Darlene's neck was melted, Her torso and her breasts were charred and burned. A pungent odor of accelerants was present. The bag on the side of Darlene's neck had been melted, obviously burned. 
Darlene's hair was burned. She was burned on the neck and on her breasts, her shoulders and bra. Her bra was melted into her chest. Her disfigured and dismembered body had been partially devoured by animals. Bite marks on her exposed organs and parts of her arm were missing from being chewed off. Okay. Let's take a second. So, psychologically speaking, I can see, you know, where Daphne would, you know, feel abandonment, feel attachment, blah, 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 all the way, all the way up to, I mean, you can see how it would unfold with the murder out of jealousy and if I can't have her, no, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now we're talking dismemberment and mutilation of this, you know, this woman's body, you know. It's it's dark and... There's a little more to it, and I want to go through that. Oh, okay. Um, why okay. why that's like that? Okay. Um, just hold 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 okay. on for. Uh, okay. But, remember, but no. remember, I don't know oh, what's yeah. happening either. Yeah. yeah. So so it's, I'm I'm listening to this as a as a listener, you know. So it's I uh, yeah okay all right. So I'm ready. So what happened, right? Although we'll never know the absolute truth, there is plenty of evidence when matched with forensics that paints the picture for us. Somehow, we'll never know how, Daphne persuades Darlene to leave Pizza Hut and get into her car, the car that Daphne shared with Jackie Chessmore, the Suzuki. We don't know the exact sequence of events over the next few days, but here's what we do know. This was on Wednesday, February 1st. Daphne takes Darlene back to the house at 1806 South Phillips. She lures her into the basement. A basement that, as we know, Jackie Chessmore, the owner of that house, describes as icky. It's all cement and spiderwebby. The steps are steep. It's unpainted, uncarpeted, although there are remnants of icky reddish-orange carpeting left down there from a sewer renovation. It's a place Jackie never goes, even getting someone else to change the furnace filter for her. But somehow, Daphne lures Darlene down those steep steps and into the icky, spiderwebby basement. And there... Jealousy, rage, and fury overcome her. The fear of losing the person closest to you. The terror of abandonment. Everything pent up inside her, wanting Sally all for herself. The hurt, the anger. that She's losing Sally to Darlene. And it all explodes. Daphne grabs a blunt object. We'll never know what. This, this item was never found. Maybe a two-by-four, a baseball bat, an axe handle. Daphne swings it, swings it with such force onto Darlene's head that she opens a seven-inch gash that extends from the top of her right ear around the back of her skull and ending under her left ear. A horseshoe-shaped gash from ear to ear. Seven inches. I mean, that's a, that's that's big. It I mean, you know, if you if you if you picture a ruler, and big, I know this is good, this is going to sound dumb but if you picture a ruler that's over half of a ruler you know that's oh my gosh donald hobby a forensic pathologist later testifies that the force of the blow to darlene's head was so powerful it very likely killed her instantly he notes so little blood in the wound to the brain that it actually surprises him he has never seen an injury so forceful and filled and filled with rage that it brought death very likely, instantly. But Daphne Wright is neither a coroner nor a medical examiner or a forensic pathologist. 
She cannot be certain that her one vicious, powerful, brutal blow has actually killed Darlene Vandergeesen. And so she finds a plastic bag, the clear kind of plastic bag that you buy bedding in, and ties it off with a hank of cord found in the basement and pulls the cord tight around Darlene's neck. Whether she hopes for strangulation or suffocation isn't clear. And probably she doesn't even know which one she's trying to affect. All she knows is she wants Darlene dead. Dead is the only way she's going to be sure Darlene is out of her life, out of her relationship with Sally. But the vicious blow to the head, the strangulation, and perhaps suffocation, even those were not enough for Daphne. In the icky, spiderwebby basement in the coal room, Daphne drags Darlene's now lifeless body into the coal room where she douses it with an accelerant, probably gasoline, maybe kerosene, and attempts to light it on fire. The autopsy will later show there is only superficial burning on Darlene's body, although enough to melt the cord tied around the plastic bag over her head into the flesh of her neck. Perhaps Daphne got scared of the fire erupting in the coal room in the basement at the house of 1806. Perhaps she just finally realizes that Darlene is dead, Maybe she's simply exhausted the need to wreak havoc on the woman she feared had come between her and the love of her life. Two days pass. Two days. From the time she was murdered on the night of Wednesday, February 1st, to Friday, February 3rd. Now, I want to I wanna go through something here because the way I see this happening, um, and we know Daphne is functioning with an IQ of about 80. Right. Um, her, average, her pro- average intelligence. Yeah. Her yeah. Pro- but her problem-solving skills are, right. are lower than that. Right. And Daphne did not have clearly a plan of how to dispose of this body. Now, here's what I here's what I believe. She her plan was. I I do firmly believe Daphne thought she was going to be able to bury that body. Remember during the investigation, little callback right. in the backyard. There was a clearly failed effort to dig a hole in the frozen February ground in that backyard. So there's a tent at a hole. So I'm thinking the ground is. I mean, the ground, the ground is, frozen. is frozen. The ground doesn't thaw in no, in, in our area until like May. Yeah, you know, you I, might get lucky and try to get it in April. So I think. Daphne executed the murder and thought she'd be able to bury the body. Then she couldn't. Forensics also show there were a lot of superficial cuts on Daphne's body. So, or, or on, on, on Darlene's body. So I believe when after the murder, Daphne realized, well, shit, I can't bury her. Well, I'll, I'll cut the body up. Right. And then she got to realize that like cutting a body up with a knife. That's that's, not going to work. So then she's like, okay, well, I'll burn the body. Let me, I'll just burn the body in the coal room. So then she lights the body on fire. Bodies don't burn very efficiently. You need need a high uh, temperature. That's why massively high temperature. Crematorium. Right. right. Massively high temperature. So she douses her body in the coal room and sets it on fire. And I'm sure it smelled really bad and it was smoking everywhere and the body just wouldn't, wouldn't burn. So then she couldn't burn it. And then she's like, well, shit, now what do I do? And she had to wait until the third to buy the chainsaw because that's when her SSI check came in. 
So you got a Wednesday night murder in which Jackie Chessmore came home that night. Right. None the wiser. She don't go in the basement. She doesn't go in the basement. So you got that body down there all day on Thursday. So I'm sure when Jackie went to work on Thursday, Daphne tried some of these other efforts. But then finally on Friday, she goes on on Friday, February 3rd, Daphne goes to Ace Hardware store at 41st in Minnesota and Sioux Falls. And there, communicating with a store clerk by written note, she explains that she wants to buy a chainsaw, but she wants it to be cheap, and she wants an electric one, and she doesn't want to spend a lot of money on it. The clerk shows Daphne a saw that sells for $52.99, which she buys. Of course, the clerk thinks it's a strange sale in February. It's not chainsaw time. Get this. Three hours later, after that purchase, Daphne returns to Ace Hardware to buy a bottle of chainsaw oil. A chainsaw doesn't work if it's not well lubricated. Obviously, it'll overheat and kick back on you. It can get clogged with debris. Daphne evidently didn't know that she needed oil when she first bought the chainsaw. She had to figure it out. And as they say, the hard way. Doing the monstrous work that law enforcement would discover in pieces across two states. Oh, man. uh... Goosebumps. Yeah. And... And please, I mean, no disrespect to Darlene when I when I say this, you know, but I just had I just did some landscaping at my house. Like I I I bought new plants and stuff like that, and put them in the in the ground, and I had to dig, um, you know, holes for them. Why do people think that they can dig these holes like with a child? I mean. Ay ay ay! Why why like why do people think that that's possible? Because they do it in the movies, Don. I know. Because they do it in the movies. I know. I know. They do it in the movies. And I am I overthinking this part of it? Absolutely. No, but, I, I mean, don't think so. It's reasonable because thought. it's because I mean I was I was sweating. I mean I was ready to pass out after you know digging two holes that were the size of you know a small perennial. So I mean it's like why why do people do this? But I guess but that goes back to what you said about her problem solving solving skills, right? You know if if. Because Darlene weighs about 200 pounds, so sure. there's, Daphne wasn't getting that, that body no, up the stairs. Up the stairs right? And the forensics show that there were no signs, no defensive wounds, no signs. It's not as though, like, like Darlene definitely walked down those stairs. Right. She didn't fall down the stairs. She wasn't right. drugged down the stairs. Right. Like, and, and just how scary it would be to be deaf because whatever oh. happened to Darlene, she never she saw or heard it coming. A thing. Nothing. She didn't know anything about it. Like, no. she. Yeah, I, and I mean that just brings that a whole, le- whole other level of terror to this. You know, she had no idea. No. Oh, it so, makes me sad. So Daphne Wright is the first woman in South Dakota history to face capital murder charges and the death penalty. Maybe even the first deaf person to face capital charges. And the trial is really complicated. Wright is forced to undergo a battery of psychological and intellectual testing. There are considerable arguments made by the defense that deaf people are are at such an extreme disadvantage that capital punishment, the death penalty, should not be on the table. And it's ultimately determined she has an IQ of approximately 80, but that her reasoning skills are childish at best. But she is cleared. To face a capital trial. And so did South Dakota have the death penalty or was it because she crossed well, two did. or because she crossed two lines? No, nope, they did. Okay. They did have it. So she 
it was determined that she is capable of understanding. And the 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 trial, everything had to be, they recorded everything so that Daphne, they moved slow in the trial and everything was recorded so that Daphne and her lawyers could rewatch the different parts of the trial afterward. So it was a really like long, long ongoing, they had translators in there and Daphne can read, you Mm -hmm. know, she can Mm -hmm. read lips. If you're going, you got to go slower. Right. But there's so much, so much complicated nuance to the way these trials go that again, they just felt Daphne was going to be at an extreme disadvantage, but ultimately because of the post murder depravity, right. They said that this, this was depraved enough on the back end that, that Darlene was kidnapped and then murdered and then dismembered and, and her body horrifically. Yeah. Oh, so terrible. Oh my gosh. On April 18th, 2007, Daphne Wright is found guilty for murder and kidnapping. The jurors, 11 women and one man cannot, however, bring themselves to put her on death row although she is given a sentence of life in prison. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this one, I feel, so I like, I like dark comedy movies a lot and making no light of the murder. No, no, not at all. Even if we've made, The buffoonery that follows the murder is like out of a movie. It's like something I'd seen, like a Guy Ritchie movie, right? Or because, because, or do you well, remember that movie, Very Bad Things? Yes, the, yes, yes, with Christian Slater, Cr- and all Christian those guys Slater, and, Jeremy Piven, you know, and and yes, you know, like these five ordinary men, or whatever, right? Kill and, someone, and, and and then they 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 don't know how to, <sighs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so it it is like it is buffoonery, right? You, like it's it's it it's, is no, it it is because like, well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a grave in my own backyard. Oh, wait a minute, it's February, it's frozen. Oh, I'll just cut the body up with a knife. Holy shit, this doesn't work. I'll light the body on fire. Right. Oh my gosh, bodies don't burn very well. I right. guess on Friday when my SSI check comes, I could get a chainsaw, wrap it, and 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 yeah, it, it, and just she, the whole the just sequence, the whole, the, yeah, the, the entire sequence of how this. How this plays out. I mean, how sad for Darlene well, and her it, family. I mean, you know, so again, not, we have not so tried to make light of that situation no. at all. You know, it's um, not even a little bit, but like, wow. It's so sad. It's so sad. She was just her friend. Darlene wasn't gay. She had no right? interest in right? Sally whatsoever. And, and that all- shows that psychological level that yes. she's at, you know, that so afraid of losing someone. Terrified. Who, you know, at this point, Sally is like the only person in Daphne's life. Right. And you right. talk about Daphne's life again was alcoholism, abandonment, religion. Her, her mom literally never accepted the fact that she was gay. Even in the trial, like her mom comes in and, you know, says, says some stuff. And even then is still saying, well, I, I, I still believe that Daphne can come to the Lord's side. Oh, I well, don't, oh, like, you can not, pray, pray the gay away. Yes. That, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Basically. Come on. So stupid. So like, like like all these things are just so so hard, and also to think about like that Friday for Daphne, that's a long freaking day. You're up in the morning, you buy this chainsaw. It takes you three hours to understand that you need oil for the chainsaw to run, so you go back and get it. So Daphne spends Friday afternoon dismembering that body, wrapping it up in all the stuff, 
cleaning up all the blood mess and painting, painting. over. So painting over all of that. As it was described erratically. Yes. Right? Like in a hurry. Yes. And, and yeah. Like that's her whole Friday. She right. disposes of these body parts everywhere and then went on date night with Sally at the end by 10 o'clock she was on date night with with Sally she made it to her and then, and then the, the next day she goes to the mom's house and she and hugs, hugs her, her mom, mom says I'll pray for your daughter and her return oh knowing full well what she has just done to her daughter's body it's horrific uh yeah sources this episode was co-written by Dr. Sean Antegni and is predominantly sourced from court documents and case files obtained through records request to the state of South Dakota. The only additional source used for this one was murderpedia.org. And a, again, a huge shout out to our sponsor, Shots Crossroads, where they make eight gallons of ranch for your delicious consumption every day. Minot's own legendary truck stop, Truck stops complete the Midwest. No Try. Midwest is complete without a truck stop. Try the crinkle fries. They're delicious. Crinkle cut, crispy fries. I love them. No, huge thank you, Shots. Uh, yes, we, we thank do, you we so do, very much. We do appreciate you guys considerably. And remember, folks, come for the Midwest. Stay for the murder. We'll see you next time.